Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and uh, the Spirit's presence in our lives, uh, that your arm is never too short to save. And as we wrap this class up, that uh, we might continually uh, have ever before us um, your mercy, uh, but also uh, your law, which points us toward the cross, uh, which uh, by your grace we're enabled to cling to it uh, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so this is our last class uh, on grace and addiction. Uh, the book is still for sale um, uh, in the bookstore. Uh, it's a great book, and uh, uh, I've, I've enjoyed uh, reading it again and talking a little bit with John Zoll about it uh, in the interim. Uh, uh, at this point, uh, we're moving on uh, to steps 9 through 12. And at this point, uh, we've, we've made a fearless inventory of ourselves. We've made the list uh, around things like anger, which especially includes resentment, uh, fear that we have in our lives that tend to control us, even though we know that it's inordinate, and, uh, and issues revolving around uh, sex, especially uh, our past histories. And then we've uh, moved on to, we've gone over that with, with a sponsor, uh, and then we make a list of all those that we have harmed uh, in some way. And in AA, it's not necessarily just a list of people that you've harmed uh, through your alcoholism, but in fact, people that you've harmed uh, and done damage to for, for any other reason. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed about uh, people, especially who struggle with substance addiction, is that it's very much a part of their personalities. And uh, in the sense that they tend to latch onto things. And I have a friend who um, uh, I was in school with, and he literally would find something. He was a recovering alcoholic, and he was sober. But literally, for a week, he would have the same lunch every single day for a week. And then he found some English muffins once that he liked, and he ate those English muffins every day for like three weeks. And then he would get into some weird music or whatever it was. And another friend of ours said, well, don't you ever worry about him? And I said, well, yes, but I'll really start to worry when you can't see what he's into, when you can't see the English muffins, when you can't see the, the I remember what it was. It was a salami mozzarella kind of thing. And uh, it was good, but not seven days good. And... Um, uh, that's that's when when I begin to worry, and so uh, personality types like that uh, tend, uh, it, regardless of whether you're struggling with addiction to alcohol, uh, that can inflict some damage on people. And we know that as sinful human beings, that sin uh, will absolutely wreak havoc on a relationship. And one of the things where I see this play out often is in marriage. You know, with a husband or a wife. Uh, no one can make you feel more better about yourself and more loved and accepted than your spouse. They know exactly what to say to you to affirm you. And at the same time, no one can absolutely bring you down and crush you uh, like your spouse can. They know exactly what to say to you uh, just to torpedo you. They, they, they know your weakness. They, they know the bruise. And, and they know how to exploit it. And we all have found ourselves in... Uh, strong discussions uh, with our spouses over various things. And we find ourselves saying those things simply to score points and simply uh, to tear them down and try to achieve a little bit of a, of a higher ground, certainly not morally, but at least tactically, in the fight. And so sin gets the best of all of us. And all of us have had to go to people who are close in our lives and say sorry, even little kids, right? Little children in your life, you, you have to go and say, I, 
I'm sorry, I, I blew that one. I, I overreacted. Just recently, our kids uh, have decided they've basically unionized, and um, <laughs> and they've got placards that say "I want." And uh, so it's been this "I want this, I want that," and and I've been saying, it really doesn't matter what you want. I don't care what you want. I'm the management, and uh, and I'm busting this up. Uh, and uh, and I have to apologize to my kids because it. Their feelings do matter, and what they want, I need to hear that out. Now, it may be a ridiculous request, but um, but really what I'm saying is I'm in, I'm in charge, and your wants are, in fact, secondary to what I want to do for you, when, in fact, some of their wants are, are innocuous. They're fine to do. So even we have to go to our children who are itty-bitty and say, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I do care about what you want very deeply, and I was just saying that because uh, I'm a mess. Uh, I'm a mess, and uh, something to look forward to when you become a parent. So, um, uh, but this list that we make, uh, and again, uh, John's book is meant to be for folks uh, who are not alcoholics or struggle with any substance addiction, but simply sinners in in life. Uh, and so he's encouraging us to go through these steps. And if you've, if you make this list of all that you have harmed, um, it's unsettling. Right? It's really uh, unsettling. And uh, a lot of those things we talked about last week are those things that often will creep up in your mind when you least expect it. When you're left alone with your thoughts, those things that happened in your past that, that you just you, you actually have a physical reaction to. You cringe when you think about it, and you would do anything to go back uh, and change it. And uh, to you, it's huge. To you, it's huge. Now, when you uh, talk about those things uh, with your sponsor, as I've said, um, you know, someone once said, this is the worst thing I've ever done, and my response was, oh, I've done that twice. Uh, there's some freedom in it, but when it involves other people, it, it, it's, it's doubly heavy, right? Because it's not just heavy for you, it's heavy for the other person. And so you've made this list, and now what? Step nine says to make direct, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, other than step four, this is the step that a lot of people have a hard time with, and you can imagine why. Uh, that whatever moment that probably just popped into your head when I said that thing that you've done in the past which has injured somebody else, uh, it's a big deal. Um, to go to somebody and to simply say, um, I'm sorry uh, for the damage that I've caused in, in your life. And uh, one, just to put it out there, to acknowledge it, uh, but two, to be at the mercy of, of their reaction. And But step nine is, um, it's more than just saying you're sorry. Step nine is where we learn how to mend broken relationships. Right? It's, it's calling out the elephant in the room. And for a lot of people that make this list, it may be, um, you know, I need to go back to, I need to t call Megan Olson because I harassed her to death all the way through middle school because her locker was right next to mine and I still feel bad about that. And I do. Uh, but um, but we got over it. It turned out she moved away at middle school. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but she moved away at middle school, and uh, and she was sort of awkward and gangly. And then in college, someone said, "Hey, we're doing a New Year's thing. Megan Olson's in town. Can you pick her up?" I thought I haven't seen her since middle school, and she's a fox. And uh, I mean, she really. So the first thing I was like, "I'm really sorry um, uh, about that." So 
Um, so it, it may be something as, as, as simple as that, uh, but, but a lot of these things are people that you actually may communicate with every single day. Uh, and there's this elephant in the room or something that's happened in the past with a sibling uh, where you actually address it and speak to them. And it's more than just saying you're sorry. It's more than even just getting it off your chest. It's, it's mending a broken relationship, uh, a relationship that's strained uh, because of something uh, that you've done uh, that your own sinfulness has caused. And the injured places in our lives are where healing and new life are most readily attainable. The areas that we're actually least likely to want to address in our lives are in fact the easiest places for God to heal. That's the the place where healing can actually take place and where healing is a possibility because you realize that you're completely broken uh, in, in that area and that's where God wants to be able to do that work. Um, others uh, might be able to compensate for the pain you have caused, but it is not the same as, uh, as healing. And so it's, again, it's not just an issue of uh, making up either. It's an issue of healing uh, for you that God is actually entering into that wound uh, that you have caused, uh, that sin has caused, and God doing that work. Uh, John writes, amends are not primarily designed to give us relief from guilt. They exist instead for the sake of the people to whom we are making them. And so really what you're trying to do is um, the other person is is the object and you're going in and saying, uh, I have wronged you uh, and I'm without excuse. And whatever it is that you have to say or whatever it is that you're thinking, um, okay. Uh, it's it, it's time to talk about this. And that's because the whole motivating factor in all of this is love. Because love emphasizes the well-being of others over and against your own. Right? That's what real love is. Um, if you've ever... Uh, uh, I don't want to be the guy who preaches the same wedding sermon every single time, but it's kind of hard not to. Uh, but one of the things that I'll often say in a wedding service... You know, you take vows that say, I take you uh, for better, for worse... And uh, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health until death do us part. And what those vows really mean is I take you for worse, for poor, and for sick. Because that's real love, right? Uh, Real love is loving somebody who really can't love in return because they're completely broken down in a way that that can't be reciprocated. And when talking to uh, couples in premarital counseling, I'll say, you know, St. Paul tells us that we ought to lay down our lives uh, for one another. Um, a, a greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And, uh, and specifically, Paul gets into the relationship between husband and wife and says, you ought to be able to willing, willingly lay down your life for your, for your spouse. And most couples will say, I'd take a bullet for her. Or I, you know, I'd, I'd step in front of a move, you know, speeding locomotive for them. And I said, well, let's talk about this on a larger scale. Um, would you be willing to lay aside your ambitions, your career aspirations, your hopes, your dreams, for the sake of, of your spouse? You know, the bullet doesn't look so bad uh, anymore. It's all right. like, where's, that, where's that train? Um, uh, that actually is, is easier than laying aside your entire life. But that's, that's what love is. And so when you're approaching these people, uh, you're going there because uh, you love them. And actually, you're looking to bring healing 
and their life uh, as well. Uh, but as step nine emphasizes, uh, <clears throat> except when to do so would injure them or others. Uh, there are times when you probably um, should um, should not um, tell people. Uh, and that's why uh, most people in AA will work through this step and work through the list with their sponsor. And the sponsor can bring some objectivity and say, Probably not a good idea to tell your 85-year-old grandmother who you happen to be the apple of their eye that you're a recovering alcoholic and uh, that you've just, uh, you're, you just got out of a rehab clinic for heroin addiction. Um, wouldn't be helpful to her probably. Uh, and, uh, and in other cases, it may be uh, that um, whatever has been done, um, it, it may not necessarily be a good idea to do that. There are lots of ways... <coughs> Um, to um, to make amends, and I would refer you to John's book and even the big book, that you can do it face-to-face, you can do it uh, through writing. Uh, there are a number of ways of, of doing that, uh, but to be incredibly conscious over whether or not that actually would be helpful uh, to the other person to bring uh, that up. Uh, it's also really not, um, again, a time... I always think of that great Seinfeld episode where um, George Costanza's father, what's his first name? Frank. Frank Costanza, yeah. Frank Costanza is sick and tired of Christmas, and so he develops his own holiday called Festivus for the rest of us. And, and they have this Festivus meal, and he just stands up and says, it's time for the airing of grievances. Um, <laughs> right? It's not that. Um, it's not time for the airing of grievances, uh, but in fact is focused on healing and hope. Uh, a huge and difficult and incredibly vulnerable step. John tells the story in his book that he worked at a radio station um, at one point in time and he, when he was working through the step, uh, he was telling a sponsor that he still felt very guilty about stealing about 75 CDs from the radio station. And so he said, I think that I, I want to go down to the radio station. So he had a huge box full of these CDs, and he goes down to the radio station and meets with the station manager and says, here are, are the CDs. Uh, if there's anything else you think I need to do to make amends, please let me know, but I want you to know that I'm terribly sorry uh, for what I've, uh, for stealing from you, and there's really no excuse for it. And the station manager's response was, who else do you know that was stealing from me? I know that there were other people, and, uh, and John said, look, I, I don't know, and I, that's not why I came here. Uh, I came here to, to fess up to what I've done. And, and, and so John said that, in fact, that man's response was not, um, probably didn't bring closure to that man. <laughs> uh, he didn't say, oh, no, I feel relieved. In fact, he was like, you know, John, uh, and he said, and as John was walking away, he actually said, you, the ma- manager said, you are hereby banned forever from the radio station which John thought was okay because he had no intention of going into the radio station ever again. And then, uh, and then secondly, uh, he did say that he liked the radio station. See, he felt like it was an okay thing uh, to at least listen to it on the radio. He didn't feel like that violated because he agreed to live by whatever it was that the people said to him after he had confessed to them. Well, after this step, move to step 10, that continued to take, continued to take a personal inventory and then when we were wrong, promptly 
admit it. And so there's this ongoing, it's not just sort of step nine happens and, and then that's it. Woo. But for the rest of your life, you continue to, continue to make this personal inventory of where you've wronged people and then you promptly admit it. And this step is not there to avoid mistakes, to help us to avoid our mishaps, but it's how we deal with mistakes when they come. All right. The inside of step, not, step 10 is that when things happen, not if things happen. Right? Not if we're wrong, but when we are wrong. And so what this step does is it actually, uh, and this is where you begin to see the change in the life of the alcoholic and in the life of the sinner, is that you become incredibly conscious of your own sinfulness in your life. Where before, you know, you, you know, when you're making a list, it may be that you have to sit down and think about it. You remember the list that the guy made with something like 900 things on it of, of things that made him angry, uh, and Subaru was one of them. Um, but, but when you're talking about making a list of the way that uh, you have wronged people, uh, what you find is that list becomes easier and easier to make as you become more and more self-aware of who you are and, in fact, what you are uh, as a human being. And so it's when those things happen. And the transformation that begins to happen when you do this, even as a Christian, even as a Christian, St. Paul talks about it in Romans, and he says, you know, before I became a Christian, I thought I was pretty great. I thought I was pretty great. I thought I was doing well. And then I became a Christian, and I realized I'm a miserable man. Right? I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a jerk. Uh, I'm a jerk. And um, that awareness, although it may seem um, like a bad thing, in fact, is a good thing. Because what it does is it points us uh, to Jesus. Uh, it makes us realize that we need him in order if, to, to make our way through life if it's going to happen. And this change does happen. Uh, a while back, I did a, bless you, a dean's class on um, sort of unlikely converts. And one of them was a guy named John Ravenscroft, who in the late 1700s uh, was a lawyer, in, bless you, a lawyer in Williamsburg, Virginia, who was famous, he was famous for... Um, getting cited for contempt of court for his use of profanity in court proceedings. Uh, not really the lawyer that you want to get, but everybody loved him. He was so much fun, and he would race his horse so fast through Williamsburg that they called him Mad Jack. And so Mad Jack Ravenscroft was a lawyer in Williamsburg, but his family had some plantation land outside of Williamsburg that he had to go and visit. And um, everybody loved him, and Mad Jack Ravenscroft, uh, you know, went to church uh, for his mom. Right? Mom would ask are you going to church? And just to avoid the conversation, he would go to Bruton Parish and he would think, this is boring. I, something's never changed. And, uh, and so this is, this is not making it for me. And he realized, professionally speaking, he should probably pull back uh, from the profanity and, uh, and maybe even the gambling and carousing that he undertook when he was in Williamsburg. And so he tried with all of his might, and going to church was one of those things. So he told his mom, I realize I need to make amends, and I need to be a better person, so I've been going to church, and I've been trying really hard. Uh, but what Ravenscroft found is after attempting this for several weeks, um, it became worse, right? That it's sort of, you know, you make the New Year's resolution not to eat Cheesecake, and then eight days go by, cheesecake-free, and then you eat an entire one when nobody else is watching. 
it was one of those situations. And so Ravenscroft actually became undone, and in his attempts to become better, he actually realized how much worse he was. And one day, uh, he heard a traveling evangelist named Devereux Jarrett in Virginia. And if you ever go through the countryside of uh, Tidewater, Virginia, if you find a little country church that's Methodist, uh, Devereux Jarrett probably started that church. And uh, he, he had, although Jarrett was an Anglican clergyman, um, and as he was riding his horse out to the plantation one day, he said that he started out not as a believer in Jesus, but by the time he arrived at the plantation, he was a believer in Jesus. And the writings from the day are, are one of the things that in almost all of his friends said was, gosh, Jack sure could cuss, uh, but it's totally changed. He's, he's a different man, and unconsciously, are children okay? Yeah, I think it was just a low battery. Okay. All right, that's a relief. Yeah. Um, I thought there might have been some sort of, we're organizing the nursery, I want. <laughs> I want more goldfish. <laughs> Do you know who my dad's going to be? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, they would, they would. <laughs> They're ruthless when it comes to goldfish. <clears throat> so, uh, but with, with Jack... Mad Jack Ravenscroft. I always sense that there's. It's inexplicable that that he's. He just. He's a changed man. So changed, in fact, that uh, he went on to be ordained in the Episcopal Church and was the first bishop of North Carolina. Um, but pretty. I mean, it would be fun to have him for confirmation. What a great testimony. Um, but what you find is in working uh, these steps, and in, especially in working step ten. Um, uh, you find this this change happening, not because of something that you're doing, but because God is doing a work in your life. And even looking back at that list of anger and fear and resentments, uh, you find God working on that. You find God working on that. And in this step too, you find again reconciliation in relationships. And what will often happen is that when someone goes to someone else to say, look, I've, I've totally blown it and I'm sorry for the damage that I've caused in your life, uh, they will often come back and say, you know, um, I didn't handle it well either. And all of a sudden you go from being estranged to being in a relationship uh, again. Um, some of you may have actually uh, experienced this step, uh, whether you're in AA or not, but this has happened to me multiple times where all of a sudden I'll get a phone call or a, an email out of the blue that <coughs> simply says, hey, I don't know if you remember uh, in college or whenever it was that this happened, but I just want to say that that was wrong and, and I'm really, really sorry. And you think, you know, Myers says, okay. And all of a sudden it was fine. And then like, all of a sudden it reminded me, oh, yeah. Um, um, but, uh, but I often wondered, I wonder what prompted them to do that. And in almost every case, uh, I realized that what they're doing is they're working uh, the ninth step there. Um, so in the Christian life, as well as in AA, it's a continual process of personal inventory and, and looking at yourself uh, through... Uh, uh, the scriptures and saying, you know, where where am I? Uh, how am I? How am I doing? Uh, step 11 says that that we sought prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Uh, AA is constantly pointing you toward uh, God as the only source uh, for solace and comfort and transformation, and and that's it too. I mean, if you simply stopped at uh, step 10 and continue the personal inventory, um, you probably were not 
going to get uh, the comfort necessary that you are going to need ultimately. So when St. Paul says, uh, I'm a mess, I thought it was okay, uh, and the very thing that I want to do, I find myself incapable of doing, and the very thing I don't want to do is exactly what I'm doing, uh, who will rescue me from this body of death? If you walk away at that point, um, it's a pretty cruddy sermon, right? Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Um, but instead, uh, he continues it uh, in Romans 8.1 by saying, uh, therefore, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1, uh, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And um, even though we're told that over and over again, um, how often do we feel it? I don't know about you, but more often than not, I, I feel like I'm a condemned man. I'm a, I'm a professional navel gazer. Right? I'm, I'm harder on myself uh, than, um, I, I was about to say than I ought to be, but I'm pretty sure I, I should probably be a little bit harder on myself about certain things. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not hard on myself about the things I ought to be hard about, um, but, um, but, but I'm constantly looking inward and, and saying, you know, get it together, make it happen, uh, focus. And um, a lot of that is geared toward, I'm, I'm a firstborn child, uh, which really doesn't mean anything, uh, except that like a lot of people, I really care a lot about what people think about me. And, uh, and so, um, but Paul tells us there in Romans 8 that it, it doesn't, doesn't matter a hill of beans. It doesn't matter a hill of beans because there is no condemnation. But if it's an issue of just uh, I'm looking to feel that way and I'm not feeling that way, uh, how can I have that assurance that there's no condemnation, that God is actually for me, not against me, and that the Holy Spirit is in my life doing a great work? Well, on the one hand, nobody can actually objectively self-critique themselves. So if you remember when you were a child growing up and your Aunt Gladys said, you have grown so much, you thought, what is she talking about, right? You, you thought, whatever. Uh, but the difference is that Aunt Gladys actually had the perspective, because she hadn't seen you in a long time, that you actually had grown. And I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror today, I still think I look like I did in college. Now, some of you say, you do look like you did in college, but um, one day that'll be a blessing. But, uh, but I look at myself, but then I, I look at pictures, right? And I think, oh my gosh, look, look at me now. Uh, that's that's right. And you know the funny thing about photographs that I, I talk about a lot is you know you look at a photo and you'll think I look terrible. I look terrible in this photo. And then five years later you'll look at the same photo and you'll think I'd kill to look like that, right? <laughs> I'd kill to look like that. So it's impossible for us to actually objectively self-critique ourselves and discern any measurable change uh, in our lives. And so. We need something outside of us to assure us of that. And the primary source of that is God's word, right? His Bible, right? His word to us. And that word tells us uh, whether you feel it or not, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? The, the Bible uh, tells us the way that things are, whether we feel it, or not, and so it's a word of comfort. In prayer, uh, God uh, meets us there and begins to do a great work on us. Other people, uh, like the spiritual Aunt Gladyses of our lives, who are able to reflect on someone like Mad Jack Ravenscroft and say, "Gosh, you're you're different." Even when you think, 
I don't feel different, and in fact, I feel worse. <laughs> I think I've gotten worse. But what uh, indeed, as the Bible says, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. God is doing an alien work that you may not even be aware of uh, in your life. But God knows that we need those outside things to show us and assure us of his love uh, and promise to us. And the thing about reading the Bible and the thing about prayer is it's not just uh, to help us keep a connection with God, but it's also designed uh, to do a work on us. Right? Uh, you're not going to be able to read the Bible and pray and be the same person. One of the things that I've started doing um, a long time, I started this in college, is someone challenged me and said, you, you ought to pray for uh, people you really don't like. Now, none of y'all are on that list right now, um, as far as I know. Um, but, um, but pray for, and, and praying for them, and I was praying for them, and it wasn't like, you know, one of the things in AA is the serenity prayer, Lord, grant me the, you know, that, um, my, I think it's in the back of the book. My grandfather had a version of, uh, yeah, God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, uh, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. My grandfather had this up on his desk for years. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to bury the bodies where no one will find them. Um, uh, and... Um, but, but what you find in praying for your enemies is, uh, and for people that, or just not enemies, you know what I mean, people you don't get along with, is that your heart actually begins to change toward them. And that they may actually not be different at all, but the efficacy of the prayer is actually in your own life, that you begin to develop a heart uh, for the people that you really thought you didn't care for and uh, a closeness to them, uh, because it's really hard to dislike people, uh, especially, or I should say hate people, uh, that, that you're praying for. And so prayer has just as much to do with us and God doing a work on our hearts as it does doing a work uh, on uh, someone else's heart. Um, the other thing is that, again, this constantly pushes us back to Jesus, right? And so if things begin to spiral out of control, you fall back on Jesus, the sure foundation. Now, I'm not sure who said this, but um, at some point in time in the church, it's been attributed to lots of people, but people have said, we have God has no hands and no feet on this earth except for ours. That is not biblical, right? It's not as if God is up in heaven saying, oh gosh, Andrew's not cooperating. You know, his where I've lost my hands, right? I, I'm not able. Uh, God can pretty much do whatever God wants to do. Uh, I've found, uh, and that's the biblical testimony. And so there's not this pressure on us as Christians. Uh, it's not our job actually to change the world and to change other people. That's God's job. That's God's job because. Uh, if you've ever, and this is where it comes in, if you've ever been on the other side of this equation where you have had somebody in your family who has struggled with addiction, um, the irony in this is that um, your anger toward that person and your anger toward the situation is actually proportional to your love for them. So the more you love somebody and the more you care about somebody, the angrier you're probably going to be. Right? Anger is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. 
And so if you've had a child or someone close to you that has sort of gone off the deep end, um, you've, you've probably found yourself, at, I mean, just completely teared out and, and just as angry and as upset. And at a point, you, you, and you'll say, I've tried everything. I've tried everything with them, and I just don't know what else to do. Uh, and what you found is that nothing you can do can actually uh, change them, except, except when it comes to the twelfth step. Uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And so, what happens? is that where you can uh, be effective and where God can actually use you to change is to show people the same grace and the same mercy that you've been shown by Jesus Christ. Right? So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Right? When we were just as awful as we've ever been in the history of the world and killing God, what was God's response to us? I love you more than I ever have. I'm pouring my life out for you. John shares this story. Uh, so I walked up to the payphone and dialed, this is from um, a guy named Dick A, who uh, shares his first encounter with Alcoholics Anonymous. So I walked up to the payphone and dialed the number for AA. I started crying, saying, I'm an alcoholic. Instead of rejecting me, she said, just a minute, you weigh right there, and sent out a guy named Ed. I actually resisted listening to him for a while because I thought he wasn't hip like me. I knew that I was just down on my luck. Ed, on the other hand, looked like he'd never had any luck in the first place. But then I saw his eyes. He did what it talks about in the big book. He relived the horrors of his past with me. He told me about himself and he did something that I learned a great lesson from. He asked about me. He said, what do you do? And I started crying. I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. But he cut me off and said, no, no. What did you do for a living before drinking got the better of you? And I told him about my writing. He actually recognized some of the things I'd written. And he said, that's great stuff. You're very talented. God must really have something in mind for you. Then I just broke down and started crying because no one had said anything kind or hopeful to me in years. And if he hadn't done that, I would not be here sober today. He had read the big book and he understood that we don't get anyone into recovery by being tough on them, but we get people here by unconditional love. They've already hurt and they've already been through hell. We don't need to add to it. We need to let them know that there's a place where there's hope. And that's what Ed did for me. After we had talked for a little while, Ed put me into his pinto to get me something to drink so that he could help me taper off the booze because I was now starting to vibrate. He realized I was going into DTs because he had delirium tremens because he had worked with wet drunks before. He asked, are you going to be okay? I'm going to stop here for just one minute to get some money so we can get you on track. And he got out of the car to use an ATM. It was the first ATM machine I'd ever seen. This was 1977. It was a hot day in Atlanta, so we got to the machine to get $20 or whatever, and before he can get back into the car, I couldn't get the door open because my hands were rattling so much, and I had thrown up all down the inside of his brand new Pinto. And the only thing that he did when he opened the door and saw what had happened was to put his arm around me. He said, it's going to be okay. If he had been critical of me, I wouldn't be here tonight. 
But Ed knew that we don't have new cars, new jobs, or new lives unless we're willing to work with another alcoholic. And he loved me and he cared for me and he took me to a place where I could weather the withdrawals. Well, that's what Jesus uh, does for us, that when we come uh, to the end and we know our own condition, uh, that all we can do is tremble at our state in life. Uh, He doesn't look at us and say, uh, well, you you really have blown it this time. Or or look at the mess that you've made. Uh, Look at my new Pinto. Um, I can't imagine God driving a Pinto, but there you go. Uh, But he probably would. Uh, Look what you've done. Uh, Look what you've done to my church. Look what you've done. Uh, to your family. But in fact, when the law has already done its crushing work on us, uh, he meets us with grace, love, and mercy. And that's where you see transformation. That's the biblical model uh, from St. Peter uh, to the woman caught in the act of adultery to Zacchaeus to whoever. Uh, That is what has happened every single time. Uh, throughout the Bible. And so uh, I'll just simply close by saying uh, I'm very critical of, you know, and you hear me say it like five steps to be a better dad or things like that. And so the irony is like, well, then why are you talking about the 12 steps? Uh, Because those steps in those self-help books point you toward yourself, things that you can do to improve upon yourself. Uh, But in fact, um, what the 12 steps do is they point outside of you uh, to another uh, who is mighty to save. And I think that the church can learn a lot uh, from AA in that regard. Any questions, comments, concerns? Yes, Helen. I was going to ask you, what did they, what did the person say to Mad Jack to change his heart? But then I think you sort of answered that question. Yeah, Deborah. Deborah some kindness, some, some hope. Yeah, I think that he that Devereux Jared, I don't know what sermon he listened to, but you can look at some of the sermons today, just pointed him outside of himself and said, you know, some of y'all are trying so hard and trying to get from point A to point B, and all you can do is tread water and barely. And so um, here's one who can move you to where he wants you to be. You just have to give up on that. All right. God bless you. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.